Ask an easy one, please. All right. <laughs> so this is the question I've had since the first session you gave. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> but I'm glad I waited to ask it because it pertains to all of them. Yeah. Uh, you brought up the section in Proverbs 31 where strong wine or strong drink was for those who are suffering. Yeah. And you applied it to the context of not withholding legitimate medicational help from those who are under the suffering of physical or maybe, I guess, spiritual ailments. Yeah. So I guess my question is, um, number one, where do I go to study more on that in Scripture? And number two, how do you apply that in the context of biblical counseling when you know that dulling the pain might not be the most helpful thing to the person in the context of their grief, their guilt, their fear, their anxiety? How do you balance when to allow them to, to be medicated to, to, as merciful versus kind of saying, no, 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 don't, don't dull the problem away? Wow, that's a really wonderful question because uh, let me give you the, the simple answer first and then I'll give you a more complex answer. The simple answer is a lot of that requires godly wisdom. That's a simple thing. But um, it is true that medication oftentimes covers over for the real problem and you don't want to do that if it's a non-organic issue or if it's a non-physiological issue. You don't want to cover over uh, the uh, the spiritual issue that's there, because a lot of people think if they take a pill and they feel better, then everything's better. When in reality, the same problem is still present. They just feel better, and as soon as that medication wears off, they're right back to where they were before. They're still anxious, worrisome, nervous, uh, depressed, those kind of things, and. Um, um, what I, uh, my approach in dealing with that in counseling is try to never make the medicine the issue. I want to make the spiritual um, focus the issue. I want to make the truth of the Word of God the issue. And so as I minister the Word of God to them, and as things start to begin to change, even though they may still be on medication then they eventually are the ones who say to me, um, I'm not sure I need to be on this anymore. Well, fine. And you've heard me say this already. You need to go back to your medical doctor and ask to be put on a reduced dosage of this, and then we'll help you as time goes on to deal with that. But you don't want them to go off of some, some medications, cold turkey. You just don't want that to happen because there are terrible effects that can occur to them if that occurs. But... The balance between those two things um, also goes into the area of what we call theologically common grace. And I hinted at that also earlier because um, uh, out in the world, the majority of people in the world are not going to follow biblical truth. They're not interested in it. And besides that, they can't. They don't have a heart to do that. They can externally maybe obey or behaviorally obey a few things that the Bible says, but uh, they're no better off before God. And even if you obey biblical truth and you don't have a heart to really serve and love God, your life will actually improve uh, a bit. Uh, But that ends up feeding their self-righteousness. All right, if that's the case. So 
I try not to get unbelievers to obey the Bible all the time. I mean, and just in those areas that are just improve their life a little bit, because we are supposed to do good to all the men, especially those of the household of faith. But um, I, I try to um, help them understand that the real issue is their heart, that the gospel is critical to the real transformation that needs to occur in their heart. They think their problem is their, the problems in their marriage. That's what they think their problem is. When their real problem is the rebellion against God. The marriage is just symptomatic of that bigger issue, that spiritual one. So I want them to see that bigger issue if they're an unbeliever. If they're on medications to deal with the depression because they're having marital problems, then maybe that medication is helping them uh, to not fall into severe depression um, or even to commit suicide. I don't know. There are actually recent studies out that are indicating that people on antidepressants commit suicide at a greater rate than people on antidepressants. Um, and the theory is something like this, is that when a person is really, really depressed, severely depressed, they may think thoughts of suicide, but they don't even have enough ambition to do it. So you take the medication and it elevates their mood. It doesn't elevate it to a normal level, but it elevates their mood. Now they still think thoughts of suicide and now they have the ambition to do it where down here they didn't. All right. And so they follow through. So there's some question. Now, I'm not saying that. The secular world is saying that. As to are truly the antidepressants, the SSRIs, are they really having the benefit that they think? Well, that's a debate that's going to be out there in the secular world, and somebody else is going to have to settle that debate. Um, but um, I'm assuming right now that in a common grace way, those antidepressants are helping them. I'm assuming that until proved otherwise. And good science will probably prove otherwise or could prove otherwise. Um, so yeah, out of common grace, um, God has provided that. And so I don't make that an issue. But then when they do come to Christ and... And they really start obeying the word of God from the heart the way they need to. The, the spirit of God is in them helping to actuate those changes that on a substantive level, things improve in their marriage and they begin to say, you know, I don't need these antidepressants, then they can come off of them. But counseling person through all the, you know, that's a period of time that that takes place in. Counseling that person through that period of time requires a lot of wisdom in working with people on what to do and what to advise them to do and not to do. Um, and it's not a fixed formula. Uh, it's not. It's going to be different with different people. Um, and your question to me was, are there other areas that you can study? Well, one of the areas theologically would be Getting good books on the common grace of God. What does that involve? All right. And common grace of God and how uh, um, medical procedures are part of the common grace of God. The fact that you have food and water and things that you enjoy 
including those incredibly good potato chips over there. <laughs> Never tasted those Maui sweet onion thingamajigs. <laughs> so it's part of the common grace of God. Masking the uh, appetite. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of the direction that I would sort of head you in, in those kind of things. Uh, a good theological understanding of that. Um, yeah. Hi. Um, my superficial question is, do you go to movie theaters now? Uh, <laughs> because basically, like, how do you retrain yeah. an unbiblical conscience? Yeah. yeah. The answer is yes, I do go to movie theaters. Um, uh, not very often. I don't have any time to. I mean, probably I attend a movie once every year <laughs> at a movie theater. And I only usually go with my sons because they want to go see a particular movie, and I'll go with them just to... I end up buying all the popcorn and stuff, which is like mortgaging your house. All right? It's horrible. For a thing of popcorn, they want... I mean, it's terrible. Um, so I, I will go with them. But I had to realize many, many years ago, through later study of the Word of God, that I had been trained in a false standard of morality there, that going to movie theaters is not a sin. I believe that going to specific types of movies are a sin because of what's in them. Um, uh, so the answer is yes, I do go, but it takes a while until your conscience is is clear about that. I, I gave the illustration in the late 1960s going the rent. It was a movie by the, some of you probably don't remember, some of you, some of you older people may, by Billy Graham Association called The Restless Ones. Anybody remember that? The Restless Well, you remember it. See, see there's one person <laughs> that remembers that movie, The Restless Ones. And that's the movie I went to see. And I was restless that whole movie. <laughs> All right. I thought God was going to strike me dead in that movie theater. Well, later on, after years of college and, and, uh, and study of the Word of God, I realized that that wasn't really a sin. Then I got married. And, um, but my wife grew up in a very similar background. And so on our honeymoon, we went to see <laughs> Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. <laughs> And that was a huge leap because on our honeymoon, that was when the first, very first Star Wars movie came out. And I desperately wanted to see that. But she couldn't go there in good conscience. <laughs> so <clears throat> I was not going to lead her into sin because I had gone through the same thing. Uh, so we went to see Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. That was a sleeper. <laughs> I just held her hand and <laughs> so that was on our honeymoon. So, okay, all right. Uh, let me preface this. This was just given to me. <clears throat> it says, can "No you... more movie questions." No, okay. no. This says, "Can you give some encouragement?" Not for me. For singles <laughs> who have anxiety. <laughs> On whether it is God's will for them to get married and when that will happen. <laughs> Here you go, Marnie. 
Are you worried about me? Are you worried? I think I think she's getting anxious. So, oh boy! Um, at that point, you want me to uh, kind of change roles here and become a prophet? I'm not going to become a prophet. Um, I can't do that. Um, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but. Um, I think overall, I mean, this is the question that always comes up in class. I'll get the question, how do I know that I don't have the gift of singleness? All right. And I say, the very fact that you have to ask that question proves you don't have it. All right. Uh, uh, That's a very unique thing, that gift of singleness, where a person is so absolutely dedicated to service for Christ that they don't care about anything else. That's all I want to do. That's all I'm focused on. And by the way, that's where the celibate priesthood and nuns came out of the Catholic Church was that kind of view of dedication. The first Corinthians seven talks about that more in detail. But Paul also clears it's not wrong to be married either. It's a good thing. And that's not and he's not going to forbid either uh, in terms of getting married. Um, but if there is a desire and you thought about it, then you don't have the gift of singleness um, at all. Now, whether or not, now that brings us to a diff- different area, whether or not God in his sovereignty has someone for you, that's a different thing. Can God uh, um, have people who are dedicated Christian people who have a desire to be married who pos- potentially won't be married? Yes, that's true. Why? Because we live in a sin-cursed world. That's the reason why. Now, hypothetically, everyone in this world should have a mate that should be married. Hypothetically. But that's the ideal world. That's the ideal world. That's Adam and Eve. That's the garden. That's... But we don't live in an ideal world. Um, There's not a perfect person... I know you thought your husband or your wife was, but there was not a perfect person for anybody. Okay? Those people that go in and they think, oh, this person is the perfect person for me. Well, then they get married, and two weeks into marriage, all of a sudden they realize this person's not perfect. (laughs) All right? Now it's a process of two sinners learning to live together to honor and glorify God with their gifts and abilities. And... um, and genuinely loving each other. Marriage becomes the most intimate of all human relationships while we're on this earth. And um, it, it is an enable. My, my wife is better than my right hand. Um, uh, she makes even trips like this possible. I, I don't have the time to set these things up and deal with all the details that are involved in it. She does all of that for me. And when I go on a trip, she'll usually lay out all of my clothes and say, wear this on this session, wear this on this. <laughs> I think she's afraid that I'm going to embarrass her really bad. <laughs> but she'll, she'll do that because I'll just throw stuff in a suitcase and go off and go do it. I don't care. Um, but so she'll, she'll, she'll determine everything that I wear and all of this. And she makes that possible. That's stuff that I don't think about. I'm so focused in on, 
on what I need to do in terms of my ministry, that um, she handles a lot of those practical areas in my life, and I really appreciate that. She makes that ministry really happen. So, um, Joe, that's the kind of lady you need. Uh, Joe wants me to quickly move on to the next question. Uh, so, um, how do you help someone who is struggling with depression and worry and fear and anxiety who is in a relationship with someone who's going through the same thing and they feed off of each other? In a relationship with somebody who's going through the same thing? Possibly the same so thing. So, they probably feed on each other mm-hmm. on this thing. Um, Uh, if, there, if a person is plagued by all of these things, one of the first things I do in counseling is um, uh, I'll uh, kind of gently and very kindly go through a very detailed process of talking through the gospel. Because a person like this who is just plagued with so many problems, Well, there's a reason, because it's not turned on. <laughs> That's the reason why. <laughs> Sorry about that. Start over. <laughs> there. Can you hear me now? Yeah. All right. Good. So, um, so anyhow, when I began to w- read my wife's journals, I realized that she really wasn't a believer. And here, I had lived with her. Let's see. In 97, we had lived together almost, at that particular point, uh, 22 years uh, as a husband and wife. So um, that's the reason why you've got to start there with people like that, start working with them. Um, They think the answer to their problem may be in their relationship with that other person. And uh, when in reality, that other person and their hopelessness and pessimism may be feeding their own hopelessness and pessimism. And the answer is not in that relationship. The answer is in Christ. And you, as a counselor, you've got to point them to Christ. Um, that doesn't mean they can't eventually have a relationship with this other person. But you need to help them see, resolve these problems. These are the big issues. And they, if they decide to marry this other person... It, and they have that other person has the same problem they do. This will just get worse. It will not get better. This is this is a relationship that's headed downhill. So they've got to resolve this now, not only for their personal walk before Christ, but for their, for their future marriage. Um, when you know using God's Word to address some of these issues. How do you not use the Bible as a hammer? Like, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is what the Bible says. You've got to do it versus yeah. with more yeah. grace. How do you, any tips on how to do that or yeah. suggestions? Yeah. Um, yeah, grab your Bible. <laughs> Let me show you. The Bible talks about this. Uh, let's go over to Second Timothy. Um, in this particular case, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking to the young pastor Timothy. 
And I love this. Um, because as a young man in the ministry, Timothy, at least when you read the argument of um, chapter 1, chapter 2, you begin to get the idea when you study that carefully that Timothy had a tendency to want to argue as a pastor and debate people. Uh, there were some very contentious men in his congregation who wanted to, to debate. Uh, you can see this in chapter 2 and verse 17. In fact, Paul names them Hymenaeus and Philetus. And in, and in, back in chapter or 1 Timothy 1, in verse 20, Hymenaeus is mentioned again along with a third guy by the name of Alexander. So Timothy had a challenge. He had three guys that were pretty cantankerous in his congregation who wanted to argue finer points of theology and actually introduce uh, false teaching into the church. And Timothy wanted to argue with them. He, wanted, he felt that as a young man, he could get into this and argue with them. Um. And later on in verse 22 of 2 Peter 2, he says, Paul says, now flee youthful lusts. This has nothing to do with sex. It has everything to do with passions like wanting to argue with people in context. Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. Don't get involved in that. And, but then he says in verse 24, the Lord's bondservant, and he's primarily referring to pastors, elders, overseers, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind. Hmm. So I'm always thinking to myself as a counselor, what's the kindest way I can say this? How, how can I kindly? Now, sometimes you have to be bold because people are stubborn. Uh, sheep are stubborn creatures, right? And you, have to be, and you have to be bold with them. And you say, well, this is what the Bible says. Do it. You know, but that's not biblical counseling. That's, that's rebuking and confrontation. Sometimes you have to do that in biblical counseling, but that's not all of counseling. Be kind to people, he says. Uh, to all, he says. Uh, able to teach. So you're instructing, you're helping them, you're teaching. You're not quarreling with them. You're not arguing with them. Patient. Patient, because as a minister of the gospel, you want people to change now. <laughs> I don't want to. I want to push these buttons in those people's lives, and I want instant change. Doesn't happen. Eh, people come along; they'll look at it, you at the side of their eyes, and just be suspicious about you, and you know, they won't change quickly. You have to be patient. You have to work with them. Patient when wrong. And that's really key because um, apparently these men, Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander, had in some way wronged Timothy. And so Paul says you still need to be patient. And then he says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. <laughs> with gentleness. Um, that's good. That's a good counselor. That's a good pastor, a gentle person. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth 
You don't get them to repent by cramming the Bible down their throat. You don't do that. You have to teach them, be patient with them, be gentle with them. And God, if the Holy Spirit's at work in their life, is going to bring them along, some people faster than others, is going to bring them along in their understanding so that they realize you're not just telling them things out of the air. You're, you're giving them God's authoritative truth. So, and then verse 26 says, and they may come to their senses. That's really a key phrase. Uh, and that's the reason why biblical counselors were often referred to and still referred to sometimes as nuthetic counselors. It comes from the Greek word nuthetao uh, that um, um, is a, uh, a noun and a verb stuck together. Nous is the, is the noun, which means mind in the Greek. And tetho comes from the word tithemi, which means to place or to put. So counseling becomes uh, placing or putting sense into the mind. All right? That's what counseling is. Nuthetao, placing sense into the mind. Bringing back sense. That's what counseling is. Um, that they may come into their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So Satan's even a part of this whole process. So um, let me show you one other passage, too. Uh, go over to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 14. You can see the same thing here. In, in terms of our, you're asking a question about our approach to people in counseling, what should the approach be? He says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. These are disorderly or unruly people. They need admonishment. That's, that's good confrontation. And by the way, that word admonishment is the word nuthetao. Um, confront them. Confront the unruly. But then he says, another part of counseling is encouraging the faint-hearted. Not all of counseling is confronting people. It's encouraging people. Some people are just discouraged. They don't think they can go on. They need encouragement. You've got to be just as much of an encourager as you are a confronter. And then third, help the weak. Help them. They just have no spiritual ambition, but there's a desire in them to do right. And then he closes it off by saying, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everybody. So there's the attitude. That's the demeanor that we need to take to helping people deal with these issues. It's a great, great question. Okay. So with that, I think our time is up, and we want to uh, thank Dr. Street, and Thanks. let's give him a uh, round of appreciation. The.